Again, welcome back to this final uh, session of the conference, and it's been a really great time these last two days. And this afternoon, um, Reverend Hal Jones will be speaking uh, to us. I don't have the bit of paper in front of me to tell me what you're speaking about. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know. (laughs) There we are. Good. Ministry. (laughs) Ministry to the whole person, the difference all this makes. So you're assuming wrapping up everything. So. but uh, Hal Jones was uh, taught here at LTS and was principal and then went to California, but now back with us. So it's great to have you speaking this afternoon. A few notices. Uh, there are CDs available, and uh, if you haven't ordered them yet, you can do so. All the uh, uh, talks on MP3 are £10, and then individual CDs are £3 each, and there's a form um, either on the book table, or I think some may have been given one. Um, and also, if you've enjoyed the conference, uh, please do invite other people. We'd like a lot more people coming to these conferences, and they now will be annually. And uh, please um, spread the, the news and invite friends and colleagues uh, for uh, next year. And also, uh, the John Owen Center, or um, run seminars, or in this case, the LTS, uh, in partnership, um, Monday seminars. Uh, and the next one is on the 17th of October, uh, next Monday, when Christopher Ash, director of the Proclamation Trust Cornhill course, will be speaking on spirit and word. That's next uh, Monday. And there are some flyers. 17th? October. Sorry, October. Right. 17th of October. I'm making a few mistakes here. Right. Well, I have the text right, which is 2 Corinthians uh, 4, verses 1 to 7. So let's read that together. Two Corinthians four one to seven. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do come to you today and we praise you for the revelation of your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are here because of that, for what you have done in revealing that glory to each of us and how we can know you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all your grace that comes to us in him. And as we've been thinking, may that move us deeply in our affections to love him and to serve him, devote our lives to him and to the ministry of his gospel. And Father, as we come to this final uh, session, we thank you for all that we've heard over these uh, last two days and the, from the different speakers and for the, from the discussions, from hearing from one another, for the fellowship we've had. And Father, we pray that we will be able to take what we've heard and think about these things and uh, we pray that they will strengthen us in the ministries you've given us and help us to live ourselves holy and godly lives that please you, uh, lives devoted to you in love, we pray, because you have loved us so much in our Lord Jesus Christ. So be with us now, we pray uh, for Mr. Jones as he comes and speaks now, uh, help him as he does so, and we commit him and all, all that we'll think about now to you in Christ's name, Amen. Well, I'm indeed grateful for the invitation to return to LTS. Glad to see it looking so well and with offspring in the form of the John Owen Center. I've greatly enjoyed the conference so far and I hope that will continue. (laughs) Yesterday I was listening with a view to having something to say today. 
Today I've been listening, hoping that no one else will say it before me. Uh, So it's with a measure of relief, uh, but only a little measure of relief or a measure of little relief that we come to our session. Uh, My intention is hopefully to gather together some of the emphases that have been made in the addresses that we have been privileged to hear and even in the question and answer sessions that have followed and to try uh, to bring to some kind of conclusion uh, the thinking that has gone on which will provide us with something further to think about and reflect on in relation to Christian ministry. I begin with the actual title given to me and with the two parts of it uh, because it has a decidedly contemporary ring, ministering to the whole person or ministry, I'm sorry, to the whole person. And there are two things I want to say here. The first is that ministry has had a long history in the church. Uh, It belongs to the time-honored category of the cure or care of souls. This might bring the Puritans to our minds almost by reflex action, because they are justly regarded and frequently referred to as physicians of the soul. But the term has an older history than the 17th century, as is made clear by the fact that it is a translation of a Latin original, cura animarum. In a most useful book that is no longer easy to obtain, John T. McNeil, the American Presbyterian scholar, has surveyed the course of this activity in the church, contrasting it with non-Christian religions and connecting it uh, with the Old and New Testaments. It's called A History of the Cure of Souls, SEM Press, 1952. And if you want to see uh, the contents page, it's there for you. Now, in the post-apostolic church, East and West respectively, there are two notable works on this subject, namely John Chrysostom's treatise on, entitled On the Christian Priesthood and Gregory the Great's Book of Pastoral Rule. These were connected with the shepherding role of bishops over against their liturgical functions and administrative responsibilities, respectively. That emphasis on the shepherding role was picked up by the 16th century reformers, who, of course, endorsed the pastoral perspective that animated both, but with a huge difference as to what that care was. Uh, Recently, the Banner of Truth has produced Peter Beale's translation of Martin Bucer's book, entitled Concerning the True Soul Care and Correct Shepherd Service, how the same should be established and executed in the Church of Christ. That marked the sharp end of the conflict with Rome that arose out of sola scriptura and sola fide as they impacted the life and the ministry of the Church. Busser was a Lutheran, of course a reformed example which is not so well known but hopefully will become available in the near future because it is currently being translated from Latin for the first time, is a work by Peter van Maastricht, who taught practical theology in Holland, a succeeding man whose name was Vucius, who had links with English Puritanism, and van Maastricht, wrote a book entitled Theoretico Practica Theologia, Theoretical Practical Theology. On that, Richard Muller, Calvin Seminary, wrote this. 
from the very onset of our efforts, we need to recognize, as Van Maastricht recognized, that the theological task is not complete unless we have distinguished four basic elements in Christian theology. Exegesis, positive doctrine, historical analysis and defense, and practice. A section of this has been translated anonymously, published by Soli Deo Gloria. It's his treatise on regeneration. There's a sample of it. Now this means that pastoral or practical theology should rank alongside the other theological disciplines. If there is still a case for referring to theology as queen of the sciences, then pastoral theology is arguably the king of the disciplines. The theological character of pastoral ministry needs to be rehabilitated. Some 50 years ago, Derek Tidwell of London Bible College, as it was then, warned in his more than useful book, Skillful Shepherds, about the growing influence of psychology and social studies. Uh, In addition, the expression, a philosophy of ministry, has become common in the USA, but never, I hasten to add, in Westminster Seminary, California. Now, that known philosophy has a dreaded ring for many of us, of course, Uh, But depending on who uses it, it may be no more than in-house shorthand for a way of thinking about ministry and not mean that human reason supplants divine revelation, divine recorded revelation. Even so, theology of ministry is surely a better expression uh, because it brings the God of the Bible into the center and at the circumference of the discipline. As the word of the Creator Redeemer, the Bible is able to address human beings in the totality of their creaturely existence and sufficient to provide the benefit needed for them as fallen sinners. Uh, There are two portions of the New Testament, and they, of course, uh, pick up so much from the Old. But there are two portions of the New Testament that uh, form loci classici, central, major, scriptural places for this whole subject. Ephesians 4 is one uh, which presents official and non-official ministries as integral to the maturing of the church and the official fueling and directing the non-official. But then there's the parenthesis in 2 Corinthians from which we have had some verses read to us a moment or two ago. Let, let me urge you there to make a particularly close study of 2 Corinthians 2.14 <coughs> to opening verses of chapter 7. The ministry of the new covenant is arguably a way of summarizing what it's about. And uh, the clear emphasis is that the new covenant excels the old because it brings righteousness and life uh, to those who merely regard the law as requiring meritorious obedience. The Lord is spirit, does not confound the persons of the Trinity. It means the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the dynamic, the energy of the new covenant that accomplishes the transformation and the increasing transformation of fallen human beings into the image of God to be seen supremely in the face of Jesus Christ. What then about the second part of our title, the whole person? Now this expression reflects the shift 
that has taken place in recent thinking about the human person. It amounts to a de-emphasis on the parts of the human constitution and an elevation of the oneness of the human person. Two factors in particular have brought about or contributed to this reorientation. The first, of course, is the impact of the sciences. The mystery of the human person has been pointed up in both psychology and physiology. And this has given rise to a concern among theologians that the unity of the human person must not be overlooked or feared from view. A holistic, blessed word at the moment, a holistic approach to this study of man has therefore been given prominence paralleling the recognition of man as psychosomatic. But in addition to that, uh, the biblical data has also uh, exerted an influence, and we've had this uh, set before us, uh, the widely and long acknowledged difficulty in fixing with unvarying precision the meanings of terms like body, soul, spirit, mind, and heart in each context in which they appear. Uh, J.A.T. Robinson of Honest to God Notoriety in the 1970s, he perhaps launched this uh, fresh study in English uh, or British scholarship with a book in 1953 a study of Pauline theology entitled The Body. And he points out uh, how the meanings of these words uh, can have rather, uh, are rather frail at the edges, and the usage varies. And he says that any attempt to consider them in a sort of a one-for-one way produces, to quote him, a nightmare for the anatomist. Now, there are works of theology that reformed theology, fairly recently published, uh, which show this alteration of direction or emphasis. In 1962, Burkauer's uh, work was translated into English, Man, the Image of God. He has a chapter in that entitled The Mystery of Man. In it, he states that the question, what is man, can no longer be answered in terms of, quote, the abstract idea of man, but in the concrete, actual man, in all his acts and omissions, many of which are of an alarming and catastrophic kind. Don't think that this shift to an emphasis on the whole person means a diminution of man's fallenness. A later chapter in this book is entitled The Whole Man. And in it, he contends that the Bible presents its anthropology in terms of relatio and not entis. That is, relation, not being. Twenty years or so later, Anthony Herkimer, Calvin Seminary, expressed appreciation of Berkauer's emphasis in his book Created in God's Image. In a chapter entitled The Whole Person, Herkimer wrote, the, the scriptures are not primarily interested in the constituent parts of man or in his psychological structure, but in the relationships in which he stands. And so concerned is Herkimer, a very valuable book, so concerned is Herkimer to preserve the unity of the person that he rejects the term dichotomy as well as trichotomy because both words contain the idea of parts. He approves of other terms such as 
a duality that is not dualistic and instead prefers to think of sides of the person, the physical and the non-physical. He says that man is one person who can be looked at from two sides, a psychosomatic unity. Robert Raymond, with an E, not an A, is an American PCA minister, and in his book, Uh, entitled A New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith, 1998, he roundly declares Berkauer's view to be, quote, nonsense. For him, it is not proper to ignore terms like body, soul, spirit, mind, heart in thinking about man. They're biblical data. And In addition, he thinks it unnecessary to do so in order to stress the unity of the person because of the way in which the divine attributes inhere in the one divine essence. And divine and human natures in the one person of the Savior, the mediator on the other he maintains that there should be no separation between constituent parts and the whole man. And yet, he says, we must think of either a dichotomous or trichotomous creature in relation to God as comprising the whole man. The little reading that I've done on this has raised the possibility in my mind that perhaps this contrast between parts and the whole is being overdrawn because it is doubtful whether Reformed theologians have ever considered anthropology in the way that medievalists are said to have inquired into the number of angels on a head of a pin. Whatever was said about dichotomy or trichotomy, and much was, it was always in the context of man coram deo, man in relation, man before God. Man may have been under a spotlight, but the floodlights were on God. Berkauer and Bavink before him and Berkauer and Herkimer, uh, they all uh, stand on Bavink's shoulders and now Bavink's works are available, of course. They also acknowledge uh, this point. (coughs) However, even if we say that contrast is being overdrawn, there is a real difference to be noticed, a disagreement to be noticed, which has an impact, I think, on ministry to the whole person. It relates to not so much the nouns, image and likeness in Genesis 1, but to the prepositions before those nouns, in particular the preposition in, God made man in, B. After his likeness, K. In and uh, B. K. In and like. And the Dutch theologians and exegetes that I've read all assert that in means is. Exodus 6, verses 2 and 3 are quoted by several of them, where God says, I appeared to the fathers as God Almighty, but, and so, an argument is presented on the basis of that, that but in Genesis 1, 26, 27, must mean is. God is God Almighty. B is used. Man is God's image. So Herkimer quotes Bavink 
who wrote, Man does not simply bear or have. And he, itali- he italicizes these verbs. Bear or have the image of God. He is the image of God. Gordon Wenham, in his word Biblical Commentary, uh, points out that this preposition translated in does not have to be so understood. Genesis 5, 1 to 2 has k and not b, and yet it's the same reality that is being referred to. And Wenham adds that the use of in Exodus 25, 9-40, where the, 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 constru- the pattern for the tabernacle is being referred to. It's all to be done but according to the pattern shown on the mount. Wenham says, this suggests that man is a copy of something that had the divine image not necessarily a copy of God himself. Philip Hughes, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, in 1989, wrote the the book with uh, a problematic element in it, entitled The True Image, The Origin and Destiny of Man in Christ. He has a chapter in that book entitled Man and the Divine Image Not Identical. That's why the adjective true is there. The implication is of disagreement. It is also noteworthy that John Murray could say the divine image defines the distinct identity of man But he consistently writes that man is in the image and not is the image. Even though he says that man is body and rejects the expression man has a body as being inadequate. Now that must be deliberate on his part just as... uh, Man and the divine image not identical, or man and the image, sorry, not identical, is deliberate on Hughes's part. Sinclair Ferguson, in the Dictionary of Theology published by the IVP, regards likeness as introducing a limitation on image, and not just a description of it. Well now, does it matter that much? Yes, I think it does. Does it matter for ministry to the whole person? I think it does. If we grant that there has been an imbalance in focusing on the parts of man, then there is a danger in over-focusing on the totality of man. When that happens, often what follows is that the whole of a person's life, individual and relational, become the concern, the proper concern and responsibility of the mission of the church in the world. Herkimer's book provides an example of this. Uh, He has a section entitled Practical Implications. And in it he uh, he emphasizes how he doesn't like the term soul saving, you see. He uses it, but um, concessively. He includes evangelistic work, educational work, family work, domestic, uh, family activity, social activity, 
all within the scope of the church as part of ministry to the whole person. This, of course, is a reflection of Kuiper's view, that every square inch of reality belongs to Christ. So it does. There's no neutral area. The question, how does Christ reign out there and in here, are questions that do not have one and the same answer. Now, there are big issues here. Oh, and political, of course, as well as uh, educational and medical and uh, so on. There are big issues here that go well beyond the theme of this conference. Uh, But they, whatever we may think about them, they will have some kind of impact on ministry to the whole person. And if we combine these all together, then the danger is that the properly authentic, specific, predominant ministry of the church in pursuing under God the restoration of the image of Christ in the sinner and its increasing transformation until glory, that will at least be put on par with other concerns, not unimportant concerns, but is the health of the body as crucial as the salvation of the soul. Now, there's another way of looking at the total person, which I want to um, direct you to so that you may think about it. It appeals to me. The verse has already been quoted uh, in an earlier section. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, we need to be uh, careful about uh, how we consider this. Paul isn't proposing uh, a form of baptized Platonism, nor is he presenting an alternative dichotomy or anthropology. Now, talking about two men, he's using a rough working definition, a self-description of him and his co-workers. And it seems to me that while we need to do our exegetical work into Hebrew and Greek terms and their usages in their contexts, that if we do not do that well and are able to manage it, it will make our ministry terribly complicated for us. Whereas something like the kind of man you see, the kind of man I know I am, but I'm glad I can't see. And the inner man, which I know exists, and which you and I know exists, because of the way in which in our decaying physical bodies, and Philip Hughes has this wonderful commentary on 2 Corinthians, he says it's not only um, mental, it's, muscu- it's not only muscular, it's mental. It's the whole of what can be seen, heard, remarked on by an outsider, the outward man. But there's that inner man. That inner man is what is to be expressed through the outer man. And because the inner man is linked with the life of Christ, it's possible to live in dying. 
And here's another thing about the emphasis on the whole person. Death is often referred to as a temporary disruption of body and spirit, which it is, but it's also the last enemy. It is an enemy. And in the course of our ministry to the whole person, what we have to do is to focus primarily on that inner man so that it may rise above and that it may transfigure that outer man so that even in a decaying body something indestructible is being manifested our aim must be to bring about under God the birth of that inner man where it doesn't exist and then to feed it and to strengthen it and to instruct it and to enliven it so that it blossoms more and more not with the kind of glory that faded on Moses' face but which is a token of a transformed incorruptible body that will correspond to the body of Christ's glory just as our redeemed spirits by his grace will be. And how do we do that? That was the question. How do we under God seek to produce that was a question about in one session. Well we're talking about man after all. And we're talking about a lost image after all. This is to quote this is a gimme. There's no problem here. It may be difficult for you and for me to define what the image of God is but the people out there are obsessed with image. They'll tell you, no fear. Ask them why they wear that. Peer group pressure. Becoming like others. Obsession with image is a, an entree for us to talk about a search for a real identity. An identity that can only be found as we were reminded yesterday afternoon. Not in Adam before the fall. But in the second Adam. And his perfect, complete, harmonious, integrated humanity. The way to do that is to focus wherever we begin as a, as a conversation point we then move on to law leading to gospel got to get there and when there has been a credible profession of faith it's gospel leading to law no there's a I can't go into that but if you want to ask, please do. The verses that we've had read to us. When did I start? Number three. The verses that we've had read to us summarize a number of features about new covenant ministry to the whole person. Plainness of speech or boldness, the character of new covenant ministry. Its content is the truth, the word of God, the gospel of Christ. But note this expression in verse 2. 
commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Christ, the image of God, via the word, preached and witnessed to, you know, exhorting one another, edifying one another. But Christ, the content of the word of God, which is the whole of the canon of scripture, Christ, the content of the word of God, brought into contact with the conscience of every person. Now we ought to be exceedingly grateful for the New Testament's categorical assertion, Christ, the image of God. Why? Well, as we've seen, the Old Testament uses man, image, and God. They're connected, but how exactly they correlate is not without its difficulties, as we've seen. Exegetes do not agree, and theologians do not agree. And discussion in the history of the church, surprise, surprise, has not been univocal either. Is the image in any way physical? Augustine argued that it was. Calvin picked it up. Not that that implied that God was corporeal. But the in man's erect stance and upward look. Something about that unique dignity that belonged to him as the special creation of God was reflected, manifested. Or is the image moral and mental? Or is it perhaps relational? Or is it social and governmental? These are all questions in any, that arise in any discussion about the image of God. But coming to the New Testament with the question, what is the image of God? You only get one answer. Granted, it's only in three places, in those explicit terms. But uh, that doesn't mean, does it, that it's relatively unimportant. We don't construct our theology in terms of the number of times a particular word is found in the Bible, or and would be the most important word in Holy Scripture. Christ, the image of God. If we want to know what the image of God is like, if we want our people to know what the image of God is like, don't direct them to themselves. Direct them to Jesus Christ. As we were yesterday afternoon. That means that you and I have to preach the Gospels more. Let's reflect on our preaching uh, schedule for the last year, two, three. Gospels? Or more in the Old Testament. Don't leave it out. Can't leave it out. Can't understand the Gospels without it. Don't leave the epistles out either. But how, how much do we preach from the Gospels? And, and how free in our own minds do we feel about talking about Jesus? He is the image of God. The kind of God who is, is the kind of man Jesus was. Don't be hesitant, don't be diffident to talk about Jesus the man. Remember Psalm 22 came up yesterday afternoon. Well, when you come to Psalm 22, don't think of first, first, of the Son and the Father. You think of great David's great, it's a psalm of David. 
You think of great David's greater son, Jesus, and the unjust way in which he was treated being just himself. Why? Why was God silent? Why was he distant when he'd heard his people before? Why didn't he step in and stop it? That's what Psalm 22 is asking. And when Jesus used that, what he was pointing to was the fact that it was being done for others. Not that he didn't know what was happening or why. It was for a seed that would now dig into those Gospels. And you know what you'll find is this. Certainly among Christian people, you talk about, and we'll, we'll, it'll be poor, it'll, it'll be inadequate, I grant you. You talk about what Jesus thought, as revealed in his words, of course. You talk about what he felt, as revealed in his words. You talk about what he did in accord with his words. And at one and the same time, Christian people are seeing the one whom they want to be like. And they're being made aware of the fact that they need to be made more like him. It's... I've searched for an adjective here, I don't know. It's, it, is it inevitable? Well, when the Spirit is present with the Word, it is inevitable. They see themselves. They get a grasp on the one who gets a grip on them. Don't underplay the humanity of Jesus. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Christ, the image of God, brought to the conscience of man. Now we've been thinking of mind, affections and will, quite understandably. And how are we going to reach these unreachables? If the heart is the human person at Cameo, which it is, well, the only one who knows it is the Lord. I, the Lord, try the heart. And we know that if we haven't captured the heart, we haven't captured the person. How can we go about it? Well, should we adopt a tripartite structure for every sermon? First point being to inform. Second point, to excite. Third point, to enact. Now, I've not seen that in any of the literature. You'll not be surprised. Um, Following it would make exacting demands of both preacher and listener. But I mention it because I experienced something in a Dutch Reformed church a good few years ago. The practice there was uh, on a a Sunday evening to preach through the Heidelberg Catechism. And the sermon was customarily divided into two parts. The first part, instructive. The second part, applicatory. And a psalm would be sung in between, which I was told was generally referred to in Dutch as the in-between psalm. You know, it's as standard as that. On the occasion I was present at the service, it seemed to me that there was such a disconnect between content and application that all authority was lost and vitality with it and repetition ensued which was burdensome for the hearer and I hope burdensome for the preacher because he shouldn't have done it no that isn't the way to go is it if man is a unity while we bear these three sides 
I use the word deliberately, three sides in mind, they're all connected. They're all integral to the person. And so what we need is a triangular framework of thinking and experience for every minister and hence all ministry. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, never think of ministry apart from your having received mercy. Calvin has a very interesting comment on this verse. He writes, Now there was more implied in making the mercy of God the reason of his apostleship than if he had attributed to the grace of God. And he leaves it there. (laughs) He doesn't go on to say anything more at that place. But then in 1 Timothy 1, Paul speaks twice of mercy having been shown to him. Chief of sinners, pardon of grievous sins, God's long-suffering and patience. We were hearing a little earlier of the way in which the word has to be felt before others can feel it. And to the degree that ministry becomes professional or propositional and ceases to be personal, the result will be that we'll have at best lopsided, unbalanced, non-harmonious believers. More of mind than of heart. More than more of affection. More of the will. And it can sometimes be noted. In a man's preaching, who he has modeled himself on, or which seminary has got hold of him. This is part of the reason for the existence of this place. Understanding so as to feel, so as to will. That's part and parcel of what we must be in order that it might be transferred to others. When the ministry is of that sort, a ministry of mercy, kindness, I beseech you by the gentleness and meekness of Christ, then we're ambassadors. Then we're representing the true Christ, the true God, who isn't aloof and distant and fickle and undependable like Allah is claimed to be. Declared to be. He's come. He's near. He wants to speak. He wants to make us whole. And we need to be made whole. As preachers, as Sunday school teachers, as youth workers, so on and so forth. So that wholeness can be transferred to others And they can be repaired and renewed. One last word. How are we to do this? Conscience. This is what I want to leave with you. By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Mind, heart, and will are difficult to reach. Conscience isn't. Everyone has a conscience. Romans 2, 12 to 14. It functions to some degree. Now I know there are two verses in the New Testament that talk about people with a seared conscience. And it's tempting for us in the terrible days in which we live to imagine that everybody has got a seared conscience. That isn't true. I think the accurate rendering of those verses in 1 Timothy and Titus refers to the deceitful liars 
and hypocrites who were leading those factions within the church at Ephesus and the church at Crete. Everyone has a conscience. It functions to some degree. End of Romans 1. Terrible catalogue of immorality. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they who do such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but take pleasure in those who do them. Spurgeon said to his students, every man, every preacher has an ally in the heart of every man. It's conscience. Lay hold of it. When we are explaining truth, do it in relation to obligation. When we're using truth to express or connect with um, affection, not affirmation, affection, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, 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 and the will too. The whole of our address shouldn't be information, one compartment, affection, another, exertion, activity, another. It's got to be all melt, melded together, first in our own souls, and then by what we say to others. Because conscience brings a human being before God. Everyone has one, to some degree or other, however faint, and irrespective of what people will say or the seeming effortless way in which they shrug off what we say. Don't believe them. Believe in presuppositional apologetics, not evidentialist apologetics. You know more about every human being than that human being is willing to face up to himself or herself. There's an awareness of God, a sensus divinitatis. There's an ought and there's an ought not. In the DNA, this, this is the double helix of human DNA before God. Use it. Because it's one of those arrows that the Spirit will use to register an effect and under his grace, effect a renewal. It takes a human person before God, but this, it goes to the core of a human being too. Conscience pulls in the mind, pulls in the affection. It can be weak, it can be defiled, it can be good, it can be bad, but it pulls in all these dimensions. Let me find you, if I can, quickly. You know, conscience can make cowards of us all, can't it? Um, it's gone. Richard III. Shakespeare's Richard III. Battle of Bosworth. Every tale, my memory reminds me of tale after tale or words to that effect and every tale condemns me for a villain contrast that with here I stand I can do no other to go against conscience is neither safe nor right so help me God the spirit conscience is not the voice of God but conscience is that which the Spirit touches in order to force, yes, at times, an entry into the human heart. The door to that heart is closed to you and me in the unredeemed sinner. But there's a lock. And there are wards in that lock and there are notches 
in that word of Christ which is the key. And you put that key into that lock. And under the good hand of the Spirit, you'll see people brought low. You'll see saints humbled. You'll see the image of God beginning. However, incipiently, beginning to take root and continuing to blossom more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. But remember, this we have in jars of clay. That's all we are. The excellency of the power belongs to him and not of us. Let us pray. Bless to us thy word, O Lord, correct anything that is amiss. Grant us further enlightenment in thy truth. Grant us to know what it is to have the word of Christ dwelling in us, richly, in all wisdom, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Send forth thy regenerating spirit to bring to birth, and then to promote growth for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.